0: Mark chapter 16, verses 14 through 20, let all of us who have ears hear. Afterward he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The word of the Lord. We got
1: ready for Easter by studying that wonderful passage in John 15 about abiding in Christ, which is really a great summary of the whole Christian witness, the whole Christian life, that we abide deeply in Christ, and out of that abiding intimate relationship, we go into the world to serve him. And, It's very important that you keep those five weeks in mind as we look at these five weeks of the Great Commission text in the Gospels, the text where the Lord tells the people of God to go, what it looks like to go into the world. The going flows out of the abiding. And so we began last week with the Great Commission in Mark, or rather in Matthew, and tonight we look at the Great Commission in Mark, And if you were here last week, one of the first things that you might notice is there are some differences, aren't there? Um, uh, there's some uh, subtle discrepancies. Uh, the first great commission takes place on a mountain. The next one takes place at a table. The timing looks a little different. Matthew mentions uh, the ascension, uh, or does not mention, and Mark does. Mark's timing of it is slightly different. And some will say, well, see, there you have it. The Bible is not trustworthy. And what I would say to you is that is precisely why I trust the Bible. This is how history works. I just finished the grants, uh, the autobiography on U.S. Grant. And they would talk about what happened in Shiloh and how one general thought this happened and one general thought that happened. And you kind of put it together and you figure out what really happened. Now, nobody is saying, I don't think U.S. Grant ever existed. I think it's all a hoax. No, it's just the way history works. And I, if, the, if the people wanted to have a conspiracy in the early church, they would have had one gospel and controlled the message. They knew exactly what they are doing. So don't worry about harmonizing small details. This is just how human beings respond to great events. What a historian sees is four separate documents that all point... To a risen Christ and disciples who had a shared mission to go into the world. Well, one of the things that's a little different about this um, version of the Great Commission is that Jesus seems a little harsher here. There's more comfort in the other passages, like the one Matt, Matt just read. And he actually says um, he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. And that can be a little unsettling. Uh, what do we do with that? Well, for starters, the word just means to correct. And I, I think we would, we would agree that in any healthy relationship, there are times when someone has to correct, and particularly if it is a A discipling or someone who's in authority over us as a parent or a teacher or a boss or a coach, there are times when you say, you know, I I need to correct you here. I don't think you have that right. So it doesn't violate the gospel of love or the the love of Christ for him to rebuke the disciples. I think it's just part of his relationship with us. But what what was upsetting him? Well, it says that they weren't believing the, the testimony and they had hard hearts. And I think we may have two things going on here, and I want to be careful here because All Souls is a church where any question is fair game. We've often said we want to be a church where you can come at any place in your spiritual journey. You can ask anything you want, as long as you want. Jesus seems very inviting of this kind of an approach. He you know The disciples come and say, hey, what's going on with you? He says, come and see. Come and stay with me for a while. A guy says, uh, heal me. And Jesus says, do you believe? He says, I believe. Help me with un- my unbelief. And he, and he heals him. Thomas doubts and he touches his hand. So Jesus is not threatened by our questions. It's an important part of a healthy spiritual community to be able to ask good questions. But, but he, this is also true as well is that sometimes a question can come not from sincere seeking, but hardness of heart. And and I don't know the difference. You know the line in your own heart. But what I'm suggesting is that we need to be honest about the motives beneath our questions, that sometimes it's sincere and legitimate, and clearly that's what faith is. It's never 100% proven. But there are times... When you might have a question or a doubt that comes out of a stubborn refusal to decenter your ego and surrender to the Lord of life, and you keep throwing up questions not because you really need answers, but because it's a defense mechanism, and you don't want to get off the throne of ego off the throne of your life. So consider that as some of what might be going on here. There might be something else. Uh, going on as well Um, Jesus has been with him for three years he's he's laid out as clearly as he could possibly lay out that he was going to die that he was going to rise again as he got closer to the cross he said it again and again and again the disciples have been witnessed to now uh, once by Mary Magdalene then by two other disciples and they refuse to believe they don't believe and again part of it may be genuine doubt don't want to underestimate that But part of it, I I submit to you, is they had in their mind a vision for how the kingdom of God should come and for what Jesus should do. And when it did not line up with how their lives were working up, they didn't want to accept it. I've been uh, starting to work on a series on overcoming anxiety, and we'll, we'll do in January. And I've been starting to kind of write down some of the themes that we might hit. And one of the initial thoughts that I've had is much Christian anxiety comes from us holding on to beliefs about God that are not true. Demanding that God do things he never promised to do. Becoming furious and fearful of him when he doesn't do what we thought he would do. So this might be another reason why the Lord corrected them. He knew that their posture, their heart, the story that they were living by was not ultimately going to lead them to life and joy and fullness in the kingdom, but to death and destruction. He says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. Last week, we, we looked at the grammar behind this. And I said that uh, it's often taught that the, it's a participle. And therefore, what it means is while you're going, make disciples. As you go about your life, make disciples. That's a great idea. It's certainly true. It's not what the Greek says. Last week, I bored you with the grammar. It's an aorist participle. It can't mean while you're going. It means go. It means move. It means change. It means leave. It means roll out. It means push off the shore. It means sacrifice. It means risk. Part of being a follower of Christ is being willing to go and step out. Change. Leap. Follow. So I just ask you to think about this tonight. I don't think it does apply to everybody. Some of you have gone, and now you're trying to figure that out. Is God calling you to go? Is there something uneasy in your stomach right now? And that's the Holy Spirit Is he calling you to move out, to change something, to pursue something, to leave something, to drop something, to start something, to risk something? That's part of what it means to be a disciple. What are we supposed to do when we go? Well, let's try to unpack this a little bit. We're, to, we're supposed to go to the world, and that Greek word is cosmos. You remember in Matthew's gospel, he says, go into all the nations, ta ethna, uh, the people groups of the world. Here is nations, cosmos, and that's a Greek word. Sometimes, John 3, it means the world that Jesus loves. Most of the time in the New Testament, cosmos is the systems and structures of a fallen world that oppose the kingdom of God. And so you have these verses in John 12, Satan is called the ruler of the cosmos. Colossians 2 describes the elemental spirits of the cosmos that are working against Christ. John 17 says we're not of the cosmos, we're to go into the cosmos. So we have a little difference here. We are sent out, not just to people groups, but to into a system, into structures that are animated by powers that work against the kingdom of God to bring the reign of Christ there. Now, what would an early reader have heard when Mark talks about the gospel? Well, first of all, let me show you a, uh, a, uh, a writing from the first century that shows how the Greek word hoengelion gospel, good news, good tidings, would have been used. This is uh, from, I think, around 60 B.C. Uh, Since Providence, which has ordered all things of our life and is very much interested in our life, has ordered things in sending Augustus, whom she filled with virtue for the benefit of men, sending him as a savior, both for us and for those after us, him who would in war and order all things. And since Caesar by his appearance surpassed the hopes of all those who received the good tidings, that's the Greek word hoangelion, uh, gospel, not only those who were benefactors before him, but even the hope among those who will be left afterward. And the birthday of the God was for the world, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news. So in the Greek of Mark's day, the gospel was an announcement that a great ruler had come and that he was the savior of the world. So when the gospel writers pick up the word gospel, they are doing it in a subversive way to say, not so fast. There is another leader who's bringing in another kingdom and his name is Jesus Christ. Now where would Jesus go Have gotten the word gospel. Jesus talks about preaching the kingdom of the gospel. Well, he would have gotten it from the prophets, and particularly Isaiah, and particularly Isaiah 61. Now, uh, let's look at this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is a messianic passage where a messianic figure is speaking in Isaiah 61. that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that He may be glorified. they shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, they shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And one more verse, I think, on the next slide: "For the Lord lo- I the Lord love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So what does gospel mean there? This messianic figure will come and bring in a new reign, a new kingdom where the poor are cared for and the oppressed are freed. And the blind see and justice is pursued. Now, Jesus begins his ministry in Luke chapter 4 by walking into a synagogue and preaching from that text and saying, I'm the guy. (laughs) So, what is the gospel? The gospel is this announcement that the kingdom of our Christ has broken decisively into the world, that this Glorious rain that is described there has broken into the world right now and we can be a part of it. Now, there's another piece to the gospel that we we need to think about briefly here and and we'll we'll try to put this uh, together um, in a way. Uh, Let me just start with a little definition of what we've got so far. Proclaiming the gospel is sharing the good news That Jesus has brought into the world a new way of being, a new culture, a new society where people are liberated from the bondage of sin, both personally and socially. Now, there's another piece to it. And I want to skip ahead. We're going to come back to verse uh, 16 in a minute. This is a real kingdom. Okay? This is a real kingdom. This is not a metaphor. This is a kingdom, Paul says, of spirit and of power. It's a kingdom that deals with individual sin. It's a kingdom that that affects the lives around us, bodies, souls. But there's more. It's also a, a kingdom where the spirit is loose. So in verse 17... We read, these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They'll cast out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up serpents with their hands. If they drink any deadly poison, it won't hurt them. They'll lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. And he says that the risen Christ authenticates their ministry through these signs. Now, we could spend a month on what this passage means. Um, I know that. Uh, We can't. I just want to zoom up tonight and take a look at what the big idea is. One thing I will say that these guys wear sandals. And they're about to go into the desert to preach the gospel into places they've never been before. And what are you going to be afraid of most if you wear sandals and you walk across the desert? getting bit by snakes. And if you've never been more than 30 miles from mama's cooking, what are you going to be afraid of eating in some crazy far-off city, getting poisoned? So this is a a comfort that God is going to go with them and protect them as they share the gospel. And And he's going to do it through what Paul calls signs, signs and wonders, healings, casting off demons, speaking in tongues, all these these gifts, I, I, I believe with all my heart these things still do happen today. And, and the reason why I say that is because this is a wild kingdom. It's like Narnia and C.S. Lewis. The animals talk here. When you go through the wardrobe, you are in a different space altogether. This is not about rational arguments or better social programs. This is about the spirit of the risen Christ being released on the planet. I think it's so important that we keep all three of these streams in mind when we think about proclaiming, announcing, demonstrating the kingdom of God. It deals with personal salvation and conversion from sin. It deals with a just society and moving towards that, even though we'll never get there before the Lord returns. And it deals with the miraculous, the gifts of the Spirit, the languages of the Spirit. It's all part of proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. Which leads us now back. To verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. How you understand belief depends on how you understand the kingdom of God, right? Because Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. If you believe in the kingdom of God, that will determine what it means to believe. It must mean more than mental assent. It includes that, but it must be more than, yeah, 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 I got the creed, I'm in, good, check. That is not what the Bible means by bestou, belief, faith. The Bible means signing on, joining a movement, enlisting, reorienting your life, cutting loose from the dock and setting sail with a navy. It is a radical Terrifying, thrusting, propulsive movement into the matrix. And I don't think we understand that. And I think we try to make it palatable and water it down and denuture it and rationalize it and strip it. And you wind up with a Hallmark card. That is not the gospel. That is not. The gospel. Whoever believes and baptized will be saved. Baptism is always the mark of belief in the the scriptures. Once Once you make a profession, you're baptized as a sign and a powerful encounter with God as you move into the kingdom of God. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. What does he mean by condemned? The word means judge. What does he mean by judge? For our purposes tonight, it means you miss out. you miss out. That there's this great movement being birthed in the world, this great surging river flowing through the world that you're invited to put your oar in and and flood towards the ocean. And if you decide to stay on the beach, fine, but you miss out. 1 Corinthians 2, 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling and in my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. So what happens here and I felt it tonight just as we were We were worshiping, and Matt was leading us so well, and the team was guiding. There was just a moment there where I just just felt my heart warm with love for Jesus, for the people leading us, and for you, who I get to do this with week after week. And for just a moment, just a moment, I put my toe through the wardrobe and I was in a world where animals talk. That's the kingdom of God. Let's pray.